Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fractal Badness Edition. It's Wednesday, December 6th, 2017. On today's show, The Disaster Artist is the new film. It's produced, directed, and starring the quite undisastrous James Franco. It's based on the making of The Room, which is widely considered to be the worst movie of all time. And then The Room, which is widely believed to be the worst movie of all time. It's inert, but also sort of vomitous. It's funny and yet (laughs) capable of draining off your will to live completely. Uh, We will discuss with Slate's own Benjamin Frisch. And finally, the little hippo known as Fiona has captured the hearts of millions including in probably the uh, members of this roundtable podcast so we will discuss fiona mania joining me today is slate's editor julia turner hello julia hi uh sorry to hear that you're slightly under the weather i think i can make it through this without a coughing fit we'll see superb and uh dana stevens slate's film critic hey dana oh hi steve <laughs> oh my I've been god, waiting. Bad, I've been practicing the room jokes <laughs> begin. All right. Well, so um there was a snafu that um all of us uh participated in more or less, uh, by which I was not able to see the disaster artist. So for the first segment I am gonna be subbed in for by uh Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor. How's it going, man? Uh good. How are you doing? Um, do you spend every day thanking your uh, thanking me for your career. I, uh, I, I should. I would say I probably like legitimately think of it every week or month or so. There is the shrine. There's the little Metcalf shrine with the candle and everything. Well, we. I'm sure we've told this story on the show before. But the but the way that Forrest got his job as the intern on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, uh, which led to many glories thereafter. Um, was by calling Steve a heterosexual Nancy boy in his <laughs> cover letter. And identifying himself as same. It takes one to know one, which, to be fair, was something that Steve had already identified himself as, and I was just copying, oh, I copying Steve's joke from his, like, Jens Lechman piece. <laughs> and no wonder I found it so funny. Uh, I'm not sure I would have given you the job, but I want to congratulate you, Forrest, for one thing, if nothing else, which is that, you know, usually when people use me to climb to the top, they just put the sole of their sneaker directly on my forehead and step upward. But you looked me directly in the eye and insulted me, so I will have a lifetime <laughs> of respect for you. But uh, anyway, so uh, as I said, there was a snafu 
Uh, I was not able to see the disaster artist. So Forrest, uh, very capably, I'm sure, is going to step in. Uh, I'm going to cede the mic to him, and you guys are going to talk about the James Franco uh, vehicle. So best of luck, and I'll see you guys in 15. Oh, hi, guys. (laughs) I already did that one. (laughs) Damn it. So the disaster artist is James Franco's new brainchild. He is the writer, director, co-producer, and uh, it's based on a, a memoir by Greg Sestero, who is an actor in this 2003 self-produced movie, The Room, which we will get to as its own phenomenon in our second segment with Steve. And um, we should maybe just say he co-wrote it with Tom Bissell. It's sort of this mixture of a buddy comedy between Tommy Wiseau, the maker of The Room, and Greg Sestero, his, his co-star and friend. And also sort of a behind-the-scenes making of featurette, which is one of my favorite genres of movies. So you get a lot of um, behind-the-scenes action and sort of see how this disastrous production all came together. Uh, Okay, so let's listen to a clip from the movie. What is the line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Scene 112, take 13, mark it. Action. I did not hit her. I. Okay, okay. Line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 17. Action. I hit her. No. Do you want to change the line? Script is script. Script says same. You're doing great, man. We'll get there. Action. Action. Action, action. You have to say it loud. I can't hear in here. Say action so I can hear. Okay. So um, so The Disaster Artist has just opened in theaters last week. It seems to have been really well received. It For the limited release that it had, it did extremely well at the box office, right, Forrest? Yeah, it had a, a great per theater average. And so. uh, and it seems to be getting a, a really warm reception. So um, it's it's sort of also a uh, in some ways I wouldn't call it a vanity project, but it's sort of a, a friend filled project for James Franco, who it's co-stars his brother Dave as Greg Sestero, the co-star of The Room and one of Wiseau's friends and collaborators. And it's also packed in every small role with all kinds of familiar faces from Hollywood comedy. Judd Apatow does a small role. Uh, who else all is uh, in there? S- Seth Rogen. Yeah, right. James Franco's brother from Another Mother. Uh, uh, Melanie Griffith. Hannibal Burris. Sharon Stone. A lot, lot of people. A lot of familiar Wait, who, faces. Wait, who is Omega it that Miley. does the cancer line? That, that deserves oh, that's a, Jackie, a particular... Oh, that's Jackie. Right, Jackie Weaver. Actress Jackie Weaver, yeah. So there's a lot of really excellent actresses, including Ari Grainer, who we just recently talked about on this show, and I was saying, whatever happened to Ari Grainer, she plays a quite important part. Lisa, the uh, the perfidious woman at the heart of the room. So that actress who played her is played by the great Ari Grainer. Well, perfidious and wan at the same time. <laughs> the amazing thing about Lisa's performance. So I... Liked this movie so much more than I expected to. I had never seen The Room. I'm aware of The Room. Called comedy classic. Worst movie ever. Ha ha ha. Someday I'll get around to seeing it. Fine. And I did for the purposes of preparing for this segment. And we, we'll talk about that. Did you see it before or after The Disaster Artist? I saw it before The Disaster Artist alone on my laptop, which is not the way you should see it. But it, I still, uh, it was immediately apparent why it's become a, a mesmerizing object in our culture. Um, and... But this film, see, I was concerned that this film would uh, be like a crystallized celebrity derision fest uh, and that it would just kind of be like a, a heartless gag. 
And I was surprised by the fact that it is, in fact, a very soulful movie about the making of a terrible movie by a lunatic. Uh, and I'm curious whether you guys shared that response. I, I mean, completely. And and in fact, like maybe my only reservation about the movie is that it achieves that sort of crowd pleasing, uplifting ending and general overall feeling by sort of lightly brushing past some of the uglier aspects of both the film itself and like the story and mysteries of Tommy Wiseau surrounding it. I mean, I think this movie is really most effective as like a distillation of every single like greatest hits funny scene in the movie and every single greatest hits uh, detail from the book. The movie that this reminds me of in its kind of mission, maybe not necessarily in its tone and style, but in its mission is uh, Tim Tim Burton's Ed Wood, right, which is another right. celebration of a gloriously bad filmmaker, Ed Wood, of the 50s, who made Plan 9 from Outer Space, which up until The Room was often cited as kind of the Citizen Kane of bad movies. And I feel like both of those movies share... Okay, Ed Wood is my favorite Tim Burton movie by far. And and the Agreed. reason that it is, I think, is that it, it does have this this love for failure, I think it, it kind of sort of reverses your aesthetic expectations of, of what a movie should be and makes you realize that there is a kind of glory in bringing a completely strange outsider vision to a Hollywood movie. Yeah, I think it is kind of instructive to to think about Ed Wood a, a little bit more, both the Tim Bart- Burton movie and, and the person. I mean, another movie that Ed Wood made uh, is this movie Glen or Glenda which I don't know have, have either of you ever seen that oh yeah which is like a, it's a movie about Ed Wood's uh, struggle with his uh, gender identity and like love for dressing up in women's clothes and I think it was often you know it was laughed at for decades um, but is also this um, kind of powerful document of one person's struggle in the, uh, I guess, 1950s with um, their gender identity. And like laughing at that kind of thing is definitely not okay. And part of me worries that, um, you know, the, the, the Tommy Wiseau accent is going to become the new Borat accent. And it's just going to be kind of obnoxious and like maybe sort of vaguely xenophobic. Um, and there's a lot more other kinds of pleasures to be found in this movie that I hope people focus more But on. that is about the reception of the movie. I mean, I would not say that in The Disaster Artist, the yeah. movie itself, that there is that kind of xenophobia or estrangement of Tommy Wiseau. And that's really largely because of the performance of James Franco, which, which is I think we can all agree is extraordinary. Like, even if you're over James Franco and you're sick of his many vanity projects of filming As I Lay Dying or whatever, I mean, there's a lot to be sort of laughed about in the absurd uh, ambition of James Franco's directing career thus far. But I think we can agree that this is kind of his, his masterpiece as a director and actor and that he really he really finds himself in this role. And it's a very hard role to play because, in fact, if I could interview James Franco, I would ask him this question. You don't really understand Tommy Wiseau's motivations. That's sort of the whole mystery and fascination of Tommy Wiseau, right, both as a person and as an, as an actor in the room, is that we don't quite know why it's so important to him to make this $6 million movie. And we don't know why he doesn't get that it's terrible or that none of his emotional reactions make any sense. Like he warmly chuckles when told horrible things about (laughs) other characters in the movie. And so James Franco somehow had to get to the bottom of that. And it makes me want to ask him, did you create motivations for Tommy Wiseau or did you try to play a character whose whose motivations were incomprehensible even to himself? Well, I mean, I think one possible reading on all of that is that like James Franco 
was probably very able to see himself in Tommy Wiseau, both in terms of the crazy ambition and like even much more specific things like Tommy Wiseau in real life was obsessed with James Dean. James Franco in real life, you know, won a Golden Globe, I think it was, and got his sort of breakout uh, role as a serious actor by playing James Dean in, in the biopic of him. And so I think Franco probably can see himself in Wiseau in a well, way Well, yeah, helps. Franco seems to take pleasure in doing things that mystify the rest of us and generally likes to behave in a mystifying manner just as an actor, director, and celebrity persona. So perhaps there was some... <laughs> and PhD candidate for and, some reason. Right. Actor history. on General Hospital. Yeah. Anyway, so there may be some resonances there as well. Maybe he can see deeper into the to the heart of the mystifying figure than, than uh, we pedestrian types. But part of what's so amazing about the performance to me is not necessarily the broader motivation because the movie does kind of stamp the arc of why make the movie in a, in a pretty clear way, which is, you know, he found he felt very lonely. He found a friend who believed in him. Uh, together they, you know, cradled the flickering flame of their Hollywood ambitions despite the indifference of varying types of the town uh, they were trying to break into. And uh, as soon as Greg said, well, wait, maybe we could make a movie, and Tommy revealed that he had enough money to do so, he was monomaniacally committed to getting it done. Like the broader arc of his motivation is clear. The thing that's more astonishing about the performance to me is just moment to moment in every scene. It's like James Franco is a better, does a better performance of Tommy Wiseau than Tommy Wiseau. Like he, he manages to almost perfectly mimic his mannerisms, the strange, like both stiffness and elasticity of his face uh the accent which is unplaceable just doing such astonishing things to both vowels and consonants <laughs> in diverse directions like and he nails it and yet he's very expressive and like i can imagine trying to like build up this carapace of perfectly mimicking all those ticks and gestures and kind of the surface stuff and and they do at the end of the film do the side by side where they show the kind of recreated scene versus the original room scene and it's so clear how how carefully they tried to echo everything. One of my favorite moments is when Ari Greener gets up from the couch in the first scene in the exact same way that the actress who played Lisa gets up from the couch, which involves this kind of like funny sidestep maneuver that I've never seen anyone do. Like they they're so focused on external gesture and yet you feel this real kind of Ahab like crazy human underneath. Um and it's moving and funny and kind of great. Also, the friendship between the two leads, between Greg Sestero and Tommy Wiseau, is being played by brothers. And uh, and it's an interesting back and forth where I started off the movie thinking, James and Dave Franco, they're brothers. You know, I wonder what their mother looks like, like thinking how similar they were. And by the end of the movie, they seemed really like two different characters. But they do kind of give energy to each other in the way that suggests a longstanding, playful relationship. And that makes this very unlikely friendship between this extremely abrasive, strange, narcissistic man and this sort of blank, not too bright Hollywood wannabe make a lot of sense and really have this kind of substance and depth. Yeah. I mean, their friendship makes a ton of sense, even though the friendship is like controlling, even in this rosy version in The Disaster Artist, the friendship is presented as like controlling and destructive and not necessarily an entirely good force in either of their lives. Um, and I'm curious for us from the perspective of having read the book 
Like that was another place where I wondered if the movie was kind of glossing things over. I mean, Greg's sister and Tommy Wiseau seem to be on great terms and are promoting this movie and the original movie together and have made a new movie together. And, you know, so to, to each their own. But that among the things we don't fully know, it feels like the exact nature and dynamic of that friendship is remains one. Yeah, I think that is I think there are, are sort of. If I recall correctly, though, you guys have both seen the movie more recently and read the book more recently. But as I recall, there are a sort of innuendos um, in the movie that are also in the book without being stated. I think it was the Times piece that used the word codependent. Like the, the right. relationship doesn't seem uh, necessarily completely healthy. Whatever yeah. It's dynamic. Right. And there's this kind of Hollywood aspect to all of that where like that is so born of 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 the desperation that comes from, you know, actors driving out to Hollywood and trying to make it in, in terms of versus the book. Uh, you know, I would recommend we just published this morning a post from Marissa Martinelli that breaks down in quite exhaustive detail everything we know about the shooting of the room, both as chronicled in Greg Sestero's memoir um, and also from other interviews and stuff. And and the movie, in terms of Greg and Tommy's relationship, does uh, condense some things pretty significantly. Like, the they did not have a falling out directly before the premiere that led to their dramatic, triumphant reunion on the night of the premiere. And in fact, Tommy just kind of disappeared while... Um, editing the movie and apparently like preparing a clean version for primetime television broadcast because he, I guess, thought it was going to air on primetime television. And the movie leaves out some of that stuff, which like vaguely bothers me, but not very much. Hmm. I mean, I would say, Julia, I really appreciated your point that it's not a Hollywood satire. I, I feel like we're all kind of sick in a way. And TV is rife with them, too, of these bitter Hollywood satires. And the fact that even though it may gloss over some things and not be as dark as it could possibly be, the fact that this is a joyful celebration of failure as well as friendship and creativity and I don't know, just sort of making things with people. It was one of the first movies I've seen in months that I completely forgot about who was president. I laughed my ass off and I just walked out feeling happy and warm. And that's that's not nothing. Yeah. The genre is let's put on a show. The genre is like when people try to make things, that's that's a glorious impulse, you know, and Jackie, the Jackie Weaver uh, monologue that she gives of like why she wants to show up and deliver this absurd line about breast cancer that's completely nonsensical day after day as they try to get this shoot done with is the heart of the film is like it's like crazy kids in Hollywood the the dreams their dreams are beautiful you know like that's that's the genre which is in fact like an incredibly classic one and kind of a sweet and great one all right well that's the disaster artist go see it i guess we can let steve out of the room now <laughs> or enter into it with him indeed thanks forest thanks guys all right well now is the moment in our podcast we take care of business uh Julia, what do you got? First, we want to remind you about a great Slate show hit parade. Most of you know Chris Melanfi from his wonderful guest spots on our show during Summer Strut and other segments. He is the most obsessive chart follower I know, and he is able to explain popular music and why we like what we like uh, like no one else. He now has a show which we've premiered episodes of in this feed, and you can now listen to it in its own feed called Hit Parade, and you should go and subscribe to it now. In each episode, he takes some hit song from decades past. He's talked about the work of the Beatles. He's talked about 
the hit Red Red Wine and its complicated auspices, and I commend you to go and subscribe to Hit Parade now. The most recent episode is about Donna Summer and how she went from Berlin-based obscurity to the queen of disco. So again, check out Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts. If you're already a fan or if you're merely about to become one, you should also be aware that Chris is doing his first ever live show in Brooklyn at the Bell House on January 18th at 7 p.m. It'll be a night of pop trivia and great music featuring special guest Ted Leo, the singer-songwriter who fronts The Pharmacists. Check out slate.com slash live for tickets. We are also in planning for our yearly call-in show. If you have questions you want to ask us, leave a message at 929-266-4914. In Slate Plus today, we are talking about what's in our bags. A Culture Gab Fest listener posed this question to us on our Facebook page, and we will gamely answer. We'll also talk a little bit about why the what's in your bag feature can be a satisfying one. To hear segments like that from ours and other shows and to get ad-free Slate podcasts across our network, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gabfest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gabfest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to it. Uh, Julia, before we r- wrap up, can I dive in here just with a quick piece of business? I was under the mistaken impression, and I have to say, I, I have to, I have to shout out to her on this that Faith Smith does an unbelievable job presenting herself as an adult and a professional. <laughs> that's that's the impression I've had until this moment. She's the queen of offense. Overwhelmingly so, but I floated the idea of doing a live gap fest at the Secret Steve location in upstate New York to her, and she improbably emailed me back, let's do it, exclamation point, I really love this idea. So basically, we've got, she's got insubordination and is planning to aid and abet you in kidnapping me and Dana. Yes, exactly. And I and also 100 or 200, whatever it is, of our biggest fans, all of whom will have signed a comically unenforceable non-disclosure agreement before they get on the bus to the secret location, which they are never allowed to disclose what could Wait, we're not going to reveal it once we're there either? No. We're just no. going to be like, we're at a place. Whoa, what an experience we're having. Can't describe it. Might reveal it. <laughs> yeah, ooing and eyeing. Well, I don't Maybe we'll reveal it. I don't know. Well, it depends. I mean- All right. This one's but- on you and Faith. Look, I trust Faith, man. Faith, Faith will not let an event be bad. All right, get ready for an invitation to to be kidnapped by Stephen Faith. Details mm-hmm. forthcoming on slate.com slash live. Or maybe it's just slate.com slash live. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right, dear. should we do our next topic? Let's, please. The 2003 movie, The Room, as you may have gleaned from segment one, is just an improbable artifact in every way. You could, I would say, on a budget of about four grand, make a better movie. Maybe on a bunch of people have said on a budget of $10. But um, this one cost $6 million only to displace what Plan 9 from Outer Space is maybe the worst movie ever made. It is an inert, flavorless mess. But also... Mana to an apparently still irony-starved world. This is something that will need to be explained to me by our guest, our producer, Benjamin Frisch, um, who understands this movie as a cult phenomenon. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve. Uh, it's awesome to have you back in the uh, uh, out of the booth and uh, um, uh, at the table. But 
first, why don't we listen to a clip? I mean, this is just talk about a freaking target rich environment. I mean, you could just you could drop a needle on the vinyl and you'd come up with a freaking classic. Where like to pick a clip? I mean, what do we even play to convey the inanity of this movie? I mean, yeah, so um Steve, the clip that I'm going to play is from the famous rooftop scene that was actually the scene from the clip that we played for the disaster artist segment that we just did. Um, for people who don't know about the story of the room, the room is about uh, a man named Johnny, played by Tommy Wiseau, and his relationship with Lisa, played by um, Juliet Danielle, being a sex-crazed maniac and eventually having an affair with uh, Johnny's best friend Mark, played played by uh, Greg Sestero. Um, and in this scene... Lisa is is telling people behind Johnny's back that uh, Johnny has been beating her, which is not true. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? I have a problem with Lisa. She said that I hit her. What? Well, did you? No, it's not true. Don't even ask. What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. <laughs> I got a question for you. Yeah. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa is loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> What a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> I'm so happy I have you as my best friend, and I love Lisa so much. Uh, okay, well, I, I mean, obviously we can't get through the clip without laughing. Can you talk about your own history with The Room? Because unlike us, I mean, I've seen and loved it since 2003, whenever it came out. But unlike you, I have not accom- accompanied the social phenomenon of cult screenings of it. I've seen it with friends at home. Tell me what it's like to go to a Midnight Madness screening of The Room. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like watching it at home. I, I tend to prefer to watch it at home, actually, um, with friends. But at a midnight screening, it's a little bit like going to see Rocky a Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of um, thing where it's like, there's a canon of things that you do during uh, any given screening. Um, maybe the most famous one is that whenever you see these uh, photos of um, spoons that are on one of the tables, they're just uh, they're picture frames that, for whatever reason, have photos of spoons in them. You in the sh- in the apartment of yeah. of, of uh, Johnny and Lisa, uh, you you shout spoons and then throw plastic spoons at the screen. There are several uh, things like that, little gimmicks and stuff. And it's it's a game, basically. But it, it's a lot... I mean, it's like the experience of watching it at home writ large because it's a lot of the experience of watching The Room is not really watching The Room. It's watching your friends watching The Room. There's some, like there's a lot of writing about The Room and especially with The Disaster Artist, there's all this writing about like, what is The Room? Well, it's this bad movie and it's so funny and people throw spoons at the screen. But I don't think it actually gets into like what is interesting about watching a bad movie, like why somebody wants to watch a bad movie and what is actually happening when you're watching a bad movie. Um, mm. and, and And for me, it's it's sort of an act of social like group criticism in a way. Like most movies invite you into their world and uh, you get sort of lost in them, even if they're not even that great movies. But the room is so impenetrable that 
it seems like everybody is it's impossible not to have the same experience when you're watching the room because it's so alienating and opaque that everyone experiences it from the outside and so it's just really fun to criticize and deconstruct like it's i think it's primarily an act of deconstruction to watch a movie like this yeah, Benjamin. I mean, I think having seen it again for, I don't know, this was maybe the third or fourth time that I watched it in prepping for this segment. And it really, really made me think about the fact that the pleasure of watching The Room to me is that it kind of breaks open the seams of what movie watching is and makes you think about and, and feel and experience the strangeness of those conventions being broken. So we're used to all of these things, even in bad movies, that we don't really have to think about because cinematic convention has this established them for us. Like sight lines will exist between two characters so that they appear to be looking at each other, right? Um, yeah. Continuity things like a glass will be in the same place as a character put it down because there's a continuity editor sitting there making sure that happens. Uh, a character is not introduced into a movie three quarters of the way through and presented as if they're an important character. Um, an actor doesn't stop playing a particular character and be replaced by a different actor unless you're in like Louis Bunuel's Obscure Object of Desire where that's happening for these avant-garde <laughs> deliberate reasons, right? But for it to be just happening for no apparent reason... Oh, and establishing shots is another really strange convention that's broken in this movie, right? The establishing shot to show that you're in San Francisco, whatever. But this movie, of course, was actually shot in Los Angeles with only a few cutaways to San Francisco or else fake green screen. And so as a result, there's this weird sense of placelessness. And suddenly there's a cable car going by for an extraordinarily <laughs> long time for no apparent reason. And so it makes you realize that establishing shots are this fake thing that we're used to. So in other words, The Room, I think, is one of the real sites of movie watching in modern times where you can break open that experience and say, oh, my brain has been trained by a lifetime of movie watching to have all these expectations. One of my favorite podcasts is a show called The Flophouse. And I forget if they said this about The Room or another movie, but they said that like in the case of like truly bad movies, of which there are, I don't think actually are that many um, of like of bad movies on this level, that it's like watching a movie made by an alien who had mm -hmm. only um, come to understand humanity through the watching of film. Like it is mm -hmm. somebody creating a film whose entire way of understanding the world is also filtered through film, which is why to me, The Room is such a kind of rich text, um, anthropologically or sociologically, I guess. Like the, what is so special about The Room, I think, is that every moment in The Room is sort of a perfect microcosm of everything in the room like every bad moment in the room is a prism for every other bad moment it's not just bad it's sort of fractally bad in that like the further down you go it's just it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and most bad movies resist that you know you would normally assign the description bad movie to a movie that was recognizably a movie but fails in some obvious way or a couple of, of obvious ways in the context of, I mean, you, you know, movies are expensive to make. They go through long vetting processes before they um, get made and then even more before they appear before your own eyeballs. You know, bad is a relative term within the universe of good to an extent that you didn't realize until you saw this because this isn't just a bad movie. It's a non-movie. I mean, it has no 
craft, no redeemable features, no plot, no not a single line of dialogue. It, it it's 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 completely weirdly inhuman. And Ben, I think you put your finger on it. It's also a little bit like, you know, computers can kind of mechanically process things now when you like it's got a kind of it's a it's a turing test failure of a movie you know it's been it's sort of been spat out without the global or holistic understanding of what either art or human life is like badness just isn't the right word because badness forms a dialectic with goodness and this is alien it's not bad it's outside of that range of that's the thing i've been i was trying to figure out watching it is like I mean, one thing that's just struck me in reading about all of this, like the it's a it's a it's a I think you used the phrase unusual artifact. Like it's kind of a singular artifact, and it's kind you know for all that you can't see the uh, alleged six million dollars that went into making the movie because presumably some huge chunk of it went to shooting the digital or celluloid version that we're not seeing at any given moment of the scene, and and all the other stuff we learn. In the course of watching The Disaster Artist, Steve, maybe you're not even up on this yet, but apparently Tommy Wiseau in making the movie just paid to have it shot twice simultaneously in digital and film for no reason. So that's where like some of the Because he went. wanted to be the first ever to have done that. <laughs> but like, but why? Anyway, but um, it's, it's, as you said, Steve, usually there's a vetting process, usually a movie that had $6 million go into it and sort of apes the contours of moviedom in this way is much closer to being what a movie is. On the other hand, although I agree with you completely that this movie feels like it was, you know, the product of a AI that hasn't quite passed the Turing test, the thing that does make me slightly queasy about it is that that is not what it is. It is the work of this man, Tommy Wiseau, who's been very evasive about where he's from, claiming that his uh, unplaceable accent is from New Orleans when it seems clear that it's not, uh, claiming that he, you know, being evasive about his age. And And where all his money came from. And where he got the money to be able to pour $6 million into this. Um, And then there's also the fact that we're, like, he seems to me like a broken human who doesn't understand human action and has a bunch of beliefs about women that are terrible and we're all just kind of laughing at it like it there there is a little bit of a queeze factor behind mm-hmm. the um kind of spoon throwing adulation of this artifact does that give it you guys mm-hmm. pause i i think you have to know like tommy has made a huge amount of money from this movie like for tommy this movie has been a success it may not be the success that he originally envisioned it but i i have a hard time feeling a lot of um sympathy for tommy in the disaster artist the book um one of my problems with the film the disaster artist is actually that like in the book tommy was as a i i read him as an extremely malevolent figure um he's incredibly cruel uh you know borderline abusive his relationship um with greg is uh obviously extremely codependent um but insofar as the room has a victim i don't think it's tommy it's it's juliet danielle who plays lisa in the movie um she is i mean she perhaps has the most screen time in the movie her body is sort of used as this object in the movie in insofar as the movie has any ideology at all it is misogynistic and Mm -hmm. she is treated unwell by the camera i think is sort of an understatement and in the disaster artist she's maybe given three paragraphs 
of of note that she's like, oh, she was great to work with. She was very nice, professional, whatever. The screening that I went to um, recently in, in New York was really cool. Um, but I know at other screenings, like like her body is sort of something that is mocked. And uh, that's the thing that actually makes me queasy. I don't really feel bad for Tommy because he's been very successful. You can buy t- you can buy Tommy Wiseau branded underwear uh, on his website. I just did because right now you can get a for twenty dollars you can get both a Blu-ray of the room and a free pair of, of Tommy Wiseau underwear. That's particularly apt in that there's a scene in the room that has to do with underwear jokes being made in an alley among three men throwing a football. Yes, yes, yeah. I guess the question of misogyny in the movie depends in part on the audience you're watching it with, because it's very easy to see the movie as a sort of promotion or advertisement for misogyny and the and the idea, which I think several pe- people, characters say straight out that women are just evil, perfidious monsters. But because the movie is so bad and such an obvious unpacking of Tommy Wiseau's personal problems with women, you know, I, you, there's no way that you can come out on his, on his character's side or the Greg character's side. Let's put it that way. I mean, the woman played by Juliette Danielle is sort of cartoonishly awful, but she so obviously comes off as a creation, a fantastical creation of these men who are investing in this movie, their own problems with women. I feel as if the movie is displaying the neuroses and in Tommy's case, maybe psychoses of misogynistic men. I don't know. It just it's it's like, yeah, Tommy's made some money, but it's clear that money isn't what he actually needed. The disaster artist sort of processes the whole thing into a beautiful Hollywood tale of like when people try to make stuff like that's a beautiful impulse, no matter what the Mm. result. And sometimes it shines through. But and you're telling me to see this movie. Yeah, but it's good. Just do it. But the (laughs) but but in this movie (laughs) done uh, in the in the room, he's a he's a person who's been through some shit that left him where he is as the person who made this movie and it just feels like there's a brokenness at the core uh, that all of the adulation and kind of comedic reverence for the object don't necessarily reckon with. But if, like me, you had never seen The Room and sort of felt like, you know, I've gotten like too old to go to midnight screenings, I like I don't, I don't need to be up on every bad movie phenomenon, uh, I would recommend that you see it. And I would recommend, someone in one of the articles we read pointed this out, Maybe don't go see it at a midnight screening where everyone's participating Agreed. so volubly Agreed, yeah. you like won't actually be able to hear the underlying thing. But also don't see it like I did alone. Like get a couple friends, partake in whatever substance is your preferred substance. Like watch it with like four to eight people in a room. Preferably with somebody who's already seen it if you can. But definitely the first time you see it, you should see it with friends um, and in home, at home, yeah, yeah, because you got to hear it's the pacing is a huge part of it too. Mm-hmm. You have to hear those long, painful sort of spaces that elapse in and between. The, then lines. the music, right, right. You may also want to watch it at four twenty in the afternoon if you catch my <laughs> drift. You may may feel like four twenty, <laughs> no matter what your substances are. Very well said. All right. Well, I think fractally bad has got to be the title of the show. Ben, thank you for coming uh, on the uh, far side of the glass. Thank you for having me. Don't fret. We have one item of purity in a debased universe. We have Fiona the Hippo. And we all have Fiona the Hippo. Um, Fiona, if you have missed this as I had, is a uh, prematurely born, uh, at one point in her early life, severely underweight baby hippo 
uh, born inside the Cincinnati Zoo, was uh, uh, put in the hippo equivalent of the NICU. Uh, it was touch and go, but Fiona has survived to become both a media and social media phenomenon, racking up millions of views for cute behavior in the tank, including swimming up and seeming to kiss a little girl uh, at the glass and on and on and on. Dana, I'm I'm lost here. You got to lead me. You got to tell me why we are doing Fiona the Hippo for the show. I do consider Dana our chief cute baby animals correspondent for the Slate Culture <laughs> Gap Fest, uh, both in terms of the endorsement capacity of pointing to the good ones and as a semiotician of uh, cute animal response. So go. All right. Well, I can't claim any particular expertise on Fiona's life. I've just read a few things about her and have been following her endearing chubby self on on Twitter all year. But I'm so happy about this segment. I have to just preface this by saying that of all the shows we've done recently, I can't think of one where I loved every single topic as much as this week. I loved talking about The Room, loved talking about Disaster Artist, and I was the one who insisted that we all do Fiona, in large part linked to uh, Rachel Syme's great profile of Fiona that appeared in the New York Times magazine last weekend. But but she's really been a creature who's been on my radar all year. She was born early this year. So, I mean, born right as we were all numbly accustoming ourselves to the idea of a Trump presidency. And I think it's kind of impossible to untie the phenomenon of Fiona Love and its explosion in 2017 from the rest of the 2017 that we've all been having. So Rachel Slime has a lot of great things to say in this in this profile of of not only Fiona but of the Cincinnati zookeepers who have been who have kind of managed her persona in this year that she's become this big celebrity with people you know coming from all around the world to see her and one of the avenues that she goes down the author of this article is what it is that a cute baby animal gives us why is it that in in general not just Fiona who's sort of the, the queen of this phenomenon this year but in general the presence of cute baby animals on social media has been sort of a healing presence for many people and is considered, and you'll often, often see this, I'm sure it happens on Facebook as well, although I'm never there, but you'll often see this on Twitter that people will send around a healing video. Maybe you needed this today. Here is my cat doing something weird. Yes. The latest one that I saw was in the Slate Cute channel of our uh, internal company Slack and was two like husky, like dog sled breed puppies that were so small that the like thickness of their fur seemed to be impeding their mobility. Like just the fluff to the the, the fluff factor to leg height was like out <laughs> of whack. I think I've seen that one, and they're running toward the camera, yeah. sort of bounding, to, yeah, to bounding as best their fluffy fluff can allow. <laughs> Yeah, that's the most recent one I've seen. And I think, I mean, there's there's lots to be said about Fiona herself. I think in part because, you know, her, her birth was public and she almost didn't make it, as you said, Steve, and she was sort of something to root for and uh, and was underweight for a while, which, of course, for a baby hippo means she only weighs 500 pounds. She hasn't <laughs> made it to the 700-pound point she should be at. But, you know, people were sort of applauding the, the acquisition of neck rolls by this very cute gray and pink baby hippo. And Rachel had a lot to say about how, you know, it's it's easy for people to project their need to to care for something, to have something small and innocent and pure and lovable onto animals, and especially because unlike human babies who are also just as adorable to project our, our love onto, animals have a sort of limited trajectory in life, right? They're not going to grow up and, and disappoint us by, you know, dropping out of school and becoming delinquents. <laughs> they are just, they have their place and their place, especially when they're in a zoo, and we can talk about zoos and how depressing zoos can be and whether or not we believe in zoos. But the fact is that zoos are the place that we are able to have this encounter with the wild animal, right? And uh, 
And so she just sort of speculates about why it is that Fiona has meant so many things to so many people. And so I guess we can use that to open onto a discussion about animals, not necessarily real animals in our lives that we can actually reach out and, and pet and take on walks, but the vision of animals that we're fed through the media and that we seem to need. Well, the notion that we now have animal celebrities is like basically the thing we're talking about here, right? Like social media and the way in which zoos and other like wildlife and preservation organizations use social media to raise awareness of their, you know, uh, conservation efforts or animal rehabilitation efforts means that we have relationships with specific individual members of species like the relationship you have with like Jessica Chastain. That's like a being in the world I am aware of. I've never met her. I probably won't. Uh, I don't know why she's, you know, really so head up about the privacy of the people in her poker ring and that new Aaron Sorkin movie. Like, why, why is she going to the mat for that? Don't know. But anyway, like, I track her. She's in the constellation of beings I don't know that I track. And social media makes it possible to include animals in that constellation. And it makes sense. I I am not a particular uh, participant in this trend. Like I'm, I have, I was not even aware of Fiona until a week ago. There was the meme that went around that proposed. I I now realize in retrospect that Fiona be person of the year for time. That was like just a time cover with like this kind of amorphous, what looked like a manatee to me because it was a hippo swimming underwater, and I hadn't seen any of these images. And I was like, oh, funny. Someone thinks time should just pick a random manatee. Like, I didn't even get. <laughs> I can't even imagine being joke. this far into 2017 and not knowing who Fiona the Hippo I, is. Celebrity animals are not my comfort source at all. But I can under, completely understand the impulse because you want to project a set of feelings onto an alien object. And we now live in a world where you can't do that with celebrities because they turn out to, like, for the large part, be horrible harassers or victims of hurt. Like, the, the, the world of, like, just rooting for celebrities to get married or whatever is is all now ruined. You can't that can't be your frolicsome departure from the horrible news of the day. The horrible news of the day has crept into celebrity watching as well. So you might as well just yeah, project onto zoo animals instead. Well, when people were so excited about Harry and and Meghan Markle last week, which we talked about in our Slate Plus segment with June, I mean, to me, the family that's far, far more interesting to follow is Henry, Bibi, and Fiona, the hippo family, <laughs> Henry and Bibi being the parents <laughs> of Fiona. And Henry died earlier this year. He was sick. And then I was following that for a while in the Cincinnati Zoo feed. And then Henry wasted away and died. It was really sad. But he did at least get to know his chubby little daughter before he left us. All I can say to our <laughs> listeners is find someone who talks about you with the same buoyancy in their voice as Dana <laughs> Stevens when she talks about Fiona the Hippo. Um, I I will say that there's something about, you know, this th- kind of darkness at noon moment that we're going through that has sent me to uh, the internet in search of cute animal videos. Um, absolutely. Like, have you guys seen the one of... Have you? I can't believe that. I can't believe I'm doing this. Do it. But have you seen? Have you seen the one where the donkey reunites <laughs> with the young girl who was his, you know, care, uh, 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 caretaker? Um, apparently not. Have you? Yes. Seen yes. Oh, yeah. I know the one you mean very well. He runs across the paddock to greet her. He's incredibly happy. He snuggles <sighs> with her. Oh my and the God. noise that he makes out of his mouth, and then the one where the wolves. The little wolf puppies have grown up and haven't seen the woman who nursed them back to health because I guess their wolf mother, you know, uh, perished some, you know, uh, for some reason. And they reunite with her as grown wolves. Have you seen that fucking video? Oh, no, Jesus. That sounds amazing. Oh, my God. It is. uh, It's 
unbelievable. But here's so I'll now attempt to make a like cogent point about this, which is I think we should be fascinated by our fascination with the animal kingdom, because obviously on one end of it is a kind of Disney-fied anthropomorphic sentimentality that insults, I think, our, their integrity as beings and our and imprisonment in human structures. Yes, exactly. And and but 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 there's an intelligent version of that 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 is I think part of the same phenomenon, right? Like it's it's that is on a continuum with a very noble attempt to understand, you know, there a Harvard um researcher in the past couple of years came out with a apparently very seriously researched book. I only read a long review essay on it, which essentially said we were only able to essentially conquer the earth because of our domestication of wolves because that was what allowed us to do animal husbandry is is to establish a perimeter around which you could um herd sheep were probably the first ones and it was uh, you know essentially turning wolves into dogs and dog you know wolves becoming over a process of probably who knows how many eons fully domesticated as as humanized animals and that allowed us literally this like clearing the space within which you know human civilization could happen and when you look at the way humans interact with dogs i find that entirely um believable but to me these issues are hugely important like how do we see ourselves reflected in animals do we perceive this as a as a continuum out of which consciousness and reason comes or is it or 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 do we think of ourselves completely separate and them as simply instruments of our own satisfaction which i think of is is kind of an evil way to look at the so it's it's i i you know what role cuteness plays in this like i think it is a deeply sympathetic response that can be manipulated towards gross and commercial ends at the same time i do think it is from the same wellspring as an attempt to really understand what we are as creatures and what they are as creatures and how we inhabit the same kind of clearing of you know i mean it's like we kind of we share a being with with these creatures and i think that that's important i don't know did i make any sense at all who's the being planet earth no, I think that I think or that the, we share the the, the fact the, like, of being with them. The fact of being exactly, yeah. and yeah. and we share a world with animals, and made a world. If this theory about dogs is true, and certainly we've been eating them forever. I mean, it's our source of protein. Like like you know, at, at a minimal level, killing you know animals and consuming them. Like we 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 made a human world in deep relationship of one kind or another with animals, and not forgetting that seems. A restoration of humanity and not just some treacly escape hatch. One of the things that these videos provide or can provide is just like a moment of existential wonder, like all all of God's creatures, right? All of creation, uh, whether or not you believe in God, just the sense of like all of the wonderful things that exist on this planet at this moment, social media baby hippo celebrities give you a way to connect with that in the middle of uh, a time that does not necessarily lend itself to appreciating the wonder of the world. Well, I have to say the Cincinnati Zoo and their social media feed and the way they've handled Fiona's celebrity has done a good job of mixing the isn't Fiona adorable kind of footage of her swimming underwater, which really is balletic and, and beautiful and charming, those swimming videos with her with her mother, Bibi. But but with the science, too, like you, you do learn a lot about hippo gestation and hippo growth and uh, and even sort of the management of a zoo animal. If you if you follow Fiona's various, <laughs> there are quite a few different ways to follow Fiona's daily doings. And uh, I don't know, I guess I, I want to get away from the idea that this is 
a shameful thing that we should be embarrassed about, that this is something that we should be ashamed of, that it's a horrible YouTube hole to go down to, for example, Google echidnas, as my daughter and I will often do, and look at funny videos of the wonderful Australian echidna, which we were lucky enough to see a few of live in some Australian zoos. For me, it's it's, it's as much of an eye scrub as it is to get, you know, a painting or a beautiful piece of music suddenly drifting across your otherwise hideously news-filled feed. There's something about suddenly seeing a the gracious dancing of a baby hippo that makes you realize that the world does have joy and beauty and not only grimness and despair. I can't believe you fucking chuckled. (laughs) That that was a Tommy Wiseau emotional reaction. No, I chuckled with appreciation for like the beauty of that creed core. I'm persuaded. I mean, my eye scrub is like watching people solve fictional, disgusting murders. That's much more shameful. I mean, can I just tell you? I'm sitting here daubing my eyes like I've never. I'm so spirit animal at one with Dana Stevens right now. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Julia Turner. No, that was not. Dana could tell in the room. That was not a laugh. That was not a laugh of. Of dis of disdain, it was a laugh of appreciation and wonder for the for the beautiful baby animal that is Dana <laughs> Stevens's brain that we get to hang out with every week. Who 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 Dana, apprehends you the world the, in such a lovely way? Dana, this is addressed to you and not Julia, but this is uh, you got to see the um you got to see the wolf video. We're gonna put it up on Facebook. Well, it's yes, let's something. actually let's gather together. Maybe not Julia. Maybe Julia will just <laughs> bitterly put up some. Come on, <laughs> come on! You guys are over concluding. This completely unfair. I will Julia, accept being Julia called will... a technophile robot, but not someone who actually hates animal videos. I'm just saying it's not my personal escape. Well, anyway, Steve and I can gather a few favorites. There was a little. There's a little seven second video of a, a hedgehog rolling off a pillow that my daughter and I have probably watched fifty <laughs> times in the last week and we never That's don't laugh i will one. say one of my maybe this is a bad sign one of my favorite animal videos is the one of a penguin shoving another penguin off of an iceberg <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh oh my god <laughs> but i also oh. like the fluffy huskies I'm participating in this. You can't stop me. <laughs> so let's let's round some up and put them on the show page. And also, please, I'm sure that all yes. of you out there, I would be very surprised if Cornucopia. most of our listeners don't have some relationship to cute animal videos. So please hook up, hook us up with maybe some of your instead of the summer strut uh, audio playlist, we can have a winter snuggle uh, <laughs> animal video playlist. Like people can submit all of their good animal videos, and we'll come up with a, a winter snuggle video playlist. Mm-hmm. The Winter Snuggle. Okay. Yes, please. Soul, let's do soul it. Restoring Winter Snuggle. Please submit your nominations either at culturefestedslate.com or facebook.com slash culturefest. And I also okay, just, my- I really want to recommend, it's sort of a log roll because she's a friend, but she really did a wonderful job. Rachel Symes' profile of Fiona the Hippo and her various oh, keepers terrific. at the Cincinnati Zoo is so good. It's not just yes. about social media and hippos, it actually is about sort of the philosophy yep. of yep. animals and how humans relate to them. And it's, it's quite worth reading. I totally agree, Dana. That is a terrific piece of uh, journalism. In the face of my withering skepticism, this was one of the uh, better segments we've done in a while. This was really fun. Okay, check out Fiona. Animal videos at facebook.com slash culturefest. Let's, uh, let's move on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. Dana Stevens, what do you got? <laughs> Okay, well, part one, I just want to follow up on my endorsement from last week, which was uh, Giovanni Battista Pergolesi's Stabat Mater. And remember that I didn't have a specific version to recommend, and I was going to go home and dig around for my old CD. So my music is too disorganized. I couldn't find my old CD, 
But I got some responses on Twitter suggesting some versions, and I have one now. And one wise thing that a couple of classical music aficionados said is that it matters with this piece whether you listen to a version that has two sopranos singing the two parts or a soprano and a countertenor, a man singing, you know, a very high soprano-style part. And uh, and I know that my recording had a man and a woman and that I love that. In general, I love countertenor voices. So I'm going to recommend a version with a pair of singers who are siblings, Elizabeth and Andreas Scholl. He's the countertenor and she is the soprano. It's with the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra conducted by Gottfried van der Goltz. And uh, I've only found it on YouTube so far, but I'm sure it exists in album form as well. It's a gorgeous version of a gorgeous piece of music. But whatever version you find, I'm sure that you will love it and you will you will wallow. I love that it's another sibling performance. It's the James and Dave Franco of Stab and Mate. <laughs> You're right. Well, in general, I love seeing <laughs> siblings perform together. I think I've endorsed on here before the Moore Brothers, who are this brother act from the Bay Area that I used to see live all the time when I, when I lived there. And their harmonies were just incredible. And I think the reason they sang harmonies so well together is that they had been working on harmonies together since they were, you know, eight and 10 or something like that. So uh, so maybe Elizabeth and Andreas Scholl also have a long, long history of singing together. But anyway, they sound amazing together. So that's a follow up on my winter wallow. And by the way, I also got quite a bit of good feedback on the winter wallow and some suggestions. So I may be wallowing more in the future in endorsements. But my second part of my endorsement is the opposite, very low culture and very just sort of mass consumption. But this is just such a fun treat that my family and I sometimes do. And we did it last night and I thought maybe I would endorse it. I am endorsing the frozen chocolate croissants from Trader Joe's. Have you guys had them? Nope. What even is that? They're just wonderful frozen pastries that are sold by sold by Trader Joe's and that have this fun element that makes it seem a little bit like you're baking because instead of just popping a frozen thing into the oven, they actually have to rise overnight. When you take them out of the box, they're quite small and they're these sort of dense, not very appealing looking rectangles. But the instructions on the box say that you lay them out on a surface with the seam side down overnight and they rise. And sure enough, when you wake up in the morning, they've yeastily puffed up into these bun-like shapes. Then you bake them for 20 to 25 minutes and you have delicious warm chocolate croissants for breakfast that are really amazingly good for being a frozen treat. But somehow the the, the puffing up part of it makes it extra exciting because the night before you say, ooh, we're going to have chocolate croissants in the morning. Making things with yeasty properties in the wintertime is the best. My boys and I made baguettes this weekend. One weird habit of my children's food consumption is that they love baguettes and they love to go to bakery and get a whole baguette and just like eat it from the end like a cigar. (laughs) Oh my God, you have to take them to Paris. They're obsessed with baguettes. But anyway, we made homemade baguettes and just like the fun of watching dough rise. And And punching it and kneading it and all that stuff. Filling the house with yeasty smells uh, is such a, that's a good wintertime wallow snuggle component as well. Definitely. So yeah, the chocolate croissants don't give you the kneading and the rising. Well, they give you the rising on themselves, but they give you the vague sense of having done some some sort of baking accomplishment and having a tasty result in the morning. Ah, that sounds fucking amazing. Um, Julia, what do you have? I would like to recommend a book. The book is Exit West by Mohsin Hamid. It was one of the New York Times notable books of the year. Uh, it's a novel that tells the story of two people Uh, First, living in a war-torn but unnamed city in the Middle East that's being taken over by militants uh, and then their migration to various points west uh, and how their relationship evolves and shifts as they make that huge transition. It's a book I've been hearing great things about for a year, but I hadn't quite picked up because uh, it sounded kind of heavy, understandably, given the topic. 
I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. Uh, the way it's told reminds me a little bit of Calvino. It's got this kind of fable quality. The exact city they're departing from is unnamed. The way in which the relationships are described has a particular specificity, but is presented uh, with a kind of universality as well that ma- that makes it feel a little bit like a fairy tale and a little bit like a story about everyone on the earth at once. I don't think I'm doing it justice in this description, but all I can say is read Exit West. You will not regret it. It's by Mohsen Hamid. And in addition to being an incredibly wonderful meditation on the experience of migration and being a refugee, it's also a marvel of book design. It has the, the hardback edition has the most beautiful book cover and just helps foster the sense that you are in possession of a precious object that can reveal life's mysteries to you. Like, I, I, I can't speak highly enough of the whole thing. Buy the hardcover and read it. It's great. That sounds incredible. All right. Well, uh, this past week, the um, uh, American philosopher Jerry Fodor, F-O-D-O-R, died. Uh, and I want to recommend with uh, really total enthusiasm and to every listener, you do not have to be interested in philosophy to take great pleasure in this. Uh, the essays that Jerry Fodor wrote for the London Review of Books, which are um, t- really together, I mean, someone has got to reprint them as a book. I mean, they're they're masterful. And Fodor was such an interesting person. I mean, he was both, he had a, an amazing sense of humor. I mean, if you want a place to begin, read his essay. He was a, a huge opera fan and deeply knowledgeable fan of opera. And he was sent by the editors of the London Review of Book on a kind of lark to go see the Tim Rice, Elton John, Aida, and talk about it in relation to the actual opera, Aida. And it is one of the funniest things you will ever read. I mean, the man had an unbelievable sense of humor, and he wove it into his work, both his, you know, very, very serious and in some respects technical work. I should say, Fodor was considered one of the great living um, philosophers uh when he died i mean a man who pioneered cognitive psychology and um uh, you know the ai a- a- any person working in an ai lab anywhere in the world is familiar with his work and his ideas uh he um and i sh- and i and i'll add also i revered him because he was taking on neo darwinism from a darwinist uh, paradigm um, which got him into a lot of trouble but he he really posed himself against the prevailing trends in American philosophy, but also kind of nonfiction bestseller list middle brow philosophy. So he was really blowing up the pretensions uh, of Steven Pinker, Daniel Dennett, and um, and Richard Dawkins in particular. Uh, this massively overstretched notion of the mind as a computational machine, um, and uh, the idea that we're um, you know our, the entire range of human experience is is reducible to selfish genes and our evolutionary inheritance uh and but he did it from a very rigorous and empirically oriented uh point of view um but 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 mostly these london review of book essays some of which are on Dennett and pinker's work but on a range of subjects they're just brilliant they're so masterful and they're pitched at everyone. I mean, anyone who can read the English language can appreciate them. And they're filled with jocularity and humanity and warmth, um, as well as a, you know, just a withering a capacity for withering sarcasm when it seemed merited. So Jerry Fodor, F-O-D-O-R, um, just go Google him and, and LRB, the initials LRB and up they will pop. And um, I, I really recommend 
that someone with the intellectual property at their disposal uh, uh, collects them into a book. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The chief content officer of uh, Panoply is Andy Bowers, of course. You can find an entire roster of like and unlike podcasts, all of which are really quite wonderful, at panoply.fm. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Bye.